pretty amazing age, as you already know, that we live in. Communication and the opportunities to communicate have just proliferated uh, through the years. And so if uh, when I'm trying to figure out what I'm supposed to do or need to remember this morning, there's all sorts of ways people let me know. Uh, they can text me or they can email me or they can uh, send me a reminder that I can then put on my phone and it will go off at a certain time to tell me. And all those are great. But Leah, who works so closely with me and Donna as our assistant and keeps us in line, has figured out how Donna and I really operate. When she wants us to know something really important, she gives us a post-it note. And so this morning as I came in, there was a post-it note on my calendar by today that reminded me about the uh, announcement that uh, Lance was going to make this morning. Donna went to her door, and on her door there was a post-it note reminding her of something she needed to bring from her office uh, downstairs. And, and I have to admit, yeah, I'm probably still part of the post-it note generation, but I'm not quite as bad as one of the staffers I had at my last church. And she would go around some days with a post-it note on her forehead. And so we'd ask her what she was doing and and she would say that she was trying to not forget she wanted to remember to do something and she thanked us for helping to remind her by asking her what was on her forehead i tell you that because my colleague and friend scott Hare, when he talks about the shema and when we when we see it uh, on the doorpost and on the on the gates and we see it worn on the hand uh, in times of prayer and also on the forehead uh, scott calls that god's post-it note The guy was trying to keep in front of the people visual reminders of the significance of God and of loving God with all that we are and all that we have. Now, I uh, have understood that in church communication, people have to see or hear things uh, at least seven times before it sinks in. Seven different times. Did I tell you we needed $1.2 million? You you heard that one. Just making sure it sunk in. Um, But... God knew this, and so there were innumerable ways that it sunk in, not only through what you saw, but also through what you heard and what you talked about. And so you are to talk about God and to talk about God's word uh, when you'd, look, you'd lie down at night and when you would rise in the morning, when you were sitting at home and when you were walking along the way. In fact, the word Shema means hear or listen. So there was going to be a visual reminder and there would be these audible reminders that uh, that we would receive. And uh, one of my uh, as I, one of the things that's helped me is Scott talks about uh, this uh, lying down and getting up and uh, at home and, and on the way as what he calls the rhythms of life. And that is there there are ways that we can do with our children, our grandchildren, our nephews, our nieces uh, that we can sort of program in times to talk about God and at pretty natural times. So perhaps when you're praying before you go to bed in the evening or maybe uh, at the morning breakfast table as you send them off to school words about God and encouragement about where God is. Maybe when you're sitting down for the family board games that Ryan was talking about or or family meals uh, in the home or perhaps while you're traveling in the car. And all these uh, are wonderful opportunities to talk uh, with your children and with our grandchildren and, and children we care about, about God. And, and, and I think Scott's right. But I learned something else this week that really changed the way I went and approached the sermon. And it comes from a Jewish, not only commentator, but, uh, but translator. His name is Robert Alter. He's long a professor at the University of California in Berkeley in Jewish studies. And, and uh, one of the things that Alter says is anytime you have two opposite words together, like 
Lie down in the evening, rise up in the morning. When you're at home or when you're along the way. He said that is, that's a, uh, a, a device, a literary device known as a mirrorism. I'm probably not pronouncing it right. M-E-R-I-S-M. And what a mirrorism is are these two opposites that indicate not just those two things, but everything and the range of things in between. So if you, so if you talk about it when you go to bed at night and first thing you get up in the morning, it means you talk about it all the time. And when you talk about it while you're at home and then also while you're traveling means you talk about it everywhere. And so what Moses is commanding the people from God is that the word of God and the practices of God are to be talked about all the time everywhere. And that is how the next generation comes to experience faith and to live in faith. And if that's the case, it really changes and makes some adjustments in the kind of approach I've taken uh, through the years, at least with uh, my own children and as a pastor. And so I wanted to share with you four things that just sort of jumped out at me about that this week. And the first one is this. When we're talking about bringing on the new generation uh, into faith, I think one of the things we're going to have to do is to change what, or adjust at least or add to what many of us have had as a goal for our children and for children we know. Like when I was raising my three sons, two goals really I had for them is, is I wanted them to know and, and, and love the Lord Jesus. I, I think I, I wanted them to know uh, that. And the second thing is I wanted them to become fairly successful in, in, in a career. And, and those are not unimportant things at all. Those are very significant. But one of the things that I began to see when I trace back to the people who have been influenced by the Shema longer than we have is they make some adjustments in that. And so the first thing is about knowing and loving the Lord and and believing in God is very important, but they didn't stop with belief. They wanted to raise a generation that would join God in action. That would that if God is the king, then we are about the kingdom of God. And what we're supposed to do as children, youth and adults is participate in what God wants to do in this world. So the emphasis is not just the kind of stuff that our kids believe, but it's the kind of stuff our kids do out of that belief. And so that becomes a major thing to raise them to join Jesus in in his mission uh, with God in this world. Another thing that had to be adjusted is uh, and, and the Jews have. Uh, many of them have grown up to be Nobel Prize winners and, and successful in, in many areas of life. But long ago, predating our time, uh, when Jews raised their children, what they wanted was not success so much in a career. Because they pretty much were going to be in the career that their family had. What they wanted for them more than anything was to grow up and be a kind and good and ethical person. No matter what their job was. That was the higher thing than to be successful by the world standard. A Jewish commentator, uh, Dennis Prager, puts it this way. He says, uh, he often asks parents the question, would you rather have a child of average intelligence who is extremely kind or a child who's brilliant and who's not kind at all? And, and, the, and the answer, I suppose it's a rhetorical question, but the answer they're looking for from generations of raising children with the Shema is what you want is the child who, first of all, is good and ethical and kind, can do the right thing at the right time and in the right way. You're raising them to act certain kinds of way, and, and the emphasis is that they will be able to act in uh, appropriate ways 
as, as they grow. And it's interesting that it, during Jesus' day, there were materials that were being compiled. Um, and before Jesus' day, during Jesus' day, and, and shortly after Jesus' day, they got formed together in, um, in a collection called the Talmud. And the Talmud was writings, uh, stories, rulings on interpretation of Scripture that, that cover a several hundred-year period. But one of the things the rabbis taught was this, that when you got to the gates of heaven, the first question you would be asked at the gate was this, were you honest and ethical in your dealings with other people? We could think of so many more questions to ask, like, did you believe in me? Uh, All sorts of things. But they were convinced the first thing had to do with how you acted out of those beliefs. And so it causes me to begin to adjust my goals for what I'm thinking of and what I think represents success in terms of faith in the next generation. Another thing that occurred to me is I would probably need to adjust or at least add to my definition of the classroom. When we were raising our kids, we pretty much thought the classroom for learning about God was a church. And so we would um, make them come every Sunday. And yes, early on, uh, one of the children complained, Dad, you only make us come because uh, you're the preacher. And my response was always to them, my, uh, I was made to come every Sunday and my dad was the obstetrician. I mean, it's just, it's, it's what we do. Um, and then, and so they were told, you do Sunday morning and then you can do youth choir or other youth group activities, but you're going to do those two things every week. And then maybe at prayer time or if they asked a particular question, maybe there's some classroom about God that also would take place at home. But in Jesus' day, that's not how they viewed it. In Jesus' day, the home was more central than the synagogue for learning the ways of God and growing in our faith with God. And they called the home, using a term that they borrowed from Ezekiel 11, 16, they called the term a mini, M-I-N-I, a mini temple or a mini sanctuary, so that the breakfast table or the bedside or the living room in front of the TV are as sacred as the altar in the sanctuary. And those are places where we learn about the love and of the ways of God. And so the classroom has to be uh, enlarged. And we realize that our, the, the care and raising of our children, grandchildren, nieces, nephews, um, is, is not the responsibility of somewhere else. Uh, when I get to heaven, they're going to say, well, how do you think the church did with your kids? That, that's, that's not the question. It was, what did I do? What did my wife do? How, how were we a part of it? Because we really are, as I hope we established a couple weeks ago, the main classroom because we're all in the school of, um, of examples. So I think we have to kind of adjust or add to the location. It's not just church, but actually a real significant part of it is going to be what happens in the home. Third thing is I, I think we're going to need to adjust how we might communicate the lessons and the word of God. And, and by that, I mean one of the things that, uh, that is foundational for Hebraic learning, so I can only assume Mary and Joseph learned, used it with Jesus, was uh, what we might call dialogue. There was lots of talking back and forth about uh, who God is, what God was doing, and, and where God was in certain, um, in our life, in, in areas of our life. Uh, and so when you come to the Shema this morning, it, it says, you know, love Lord your God with all your heart and soul and might. And, your, and then it says, uh, these words I'm commanding you this day are to be on your hearts, impress them on your children. The next thing it says, talk about it. 
talk with them in these certain areas. Now here, I, I think you need to know, Hebraically, we're talking about dialogue, not discussion. Discussion is where I kind of have an idea, and you have your idea, and we talk, and at the end, I still got my idea, and you still got your idea. And we've all known and met people who, uh, doesn't matter what we say or do, they're not going to move or change or budge or grow or learn from what we've shared. Uh, and those people are wonderful, but they, they need to be assisted to be parents. Because the word Shema means that we're going to hear and be affected by it. So that we, when we go with our children and we dialogue with them, we need to be open for what they're going to bring us. To be open to where they are and what they are trying to do and, and become. And so that we can talk back and forth and listen about it. Oftentimes people will, will enjoy quoting Proverbs 22.6. Train up a child uh, in the way they should go and when they're old they won't depart from it. But as we talked about before, there's a nuance in, in Hebrew that unfortunately we don't pick up in English real well, which basically says train up a child in the way that they are going. In other words, that you listen to the child enough to know how God has wired them, how God is putting them together, uh, what God may be wanting to do with them, and you coach them in that way. I don't know if that makes sense to you. Another way we say it in our house is, is if, the, if the child's train is going anywhere in a direction that you can blast, get on board. Uh, that, that we want to listen and be, be uh, affected by it. And so the dialogue uh, becomes an important part. And, and, and dialogue can take place anywhere at any time. One of the things the Jews knew, which unfortunately I think a lot of times we Westerners don't know, is that everything, absolutely everything, is theological. There are not some things that are about God and some things that are not. It is all about God. It is all under God's uh, sight. And so everything becomes a discussion where we can share about what God is doing, what God requires, uh, where God might be leading. And this, um, uh, this past month in September, uh, some of you got to hear my youngest son preach. He's a senior in college and getting ready to go into a seminary. And so, you know, we want him not only to get into a good seminary, but we want them to help him pay for it. So we have strategized, manipulated, calculated. We've done all sorts of things. We've been on him about, uh, about getting a transcript or writing an essay that seems to fit the particular school. You know, we, we've, we've done all that stuff. And so I'm driving to Dallas for a meeting this week, and I realized that in the name of theological education for our child, we have talked about everything but God. And so I was on the way back home, uh, knowing I'd mess this one up. And uh, so we went to dinner, and I said to Reed, I said, have I ever told you the story of how I got to seminary? Did I ever tell you that the place I went was the one school I didn't apply to? There was no way to control. There was no way to manipulate. There was no way to work the angles on this one. One day I was in the shower. Apparently one of my professors had sent my resume to, to a school. And so they called. My roommate answered it, you know, knocked on the door. So I put on a towel, came out, talked on the phone. And, and the person on the other end had offered me uh, a free ride uh, to a place that turned out to have uh, be a wonderful place to learn and a pretty good basketball team. And, um, you know, but I... They were not on my radar, anywhere on my radar. That's not something I could have arranged. The Holy Spirit was working, so I finally said to him, you know, God's in this. It's going to be okay. Now, yeah, meet your deadlines. Do the best you can, but let it go. After that, you're going to be where you need to be, doing what you need to do, uh, and, and we'll go from there. It's, 
everything is theological, including applying to theological schools. The whole, it runs. So we need to learn that. And, and then finally, just as I've hinted at the past couple of weeks, if, if we approach this way with our children, grandchildren, nieces, nephews, neighbors, uh, because remember, all children are our children when we're in the community of faith. If we're going to do this, it's going to take some time, a little bit more time than maybe we've been used uh, to giving it. It takes a lot of energy to, to sit there and listen when a child says, why? It takes even more energy when they're describing something that happened at school and you say to them, why do you think it went like that? Why do you think he responded? Why do you think your teacher wants you to... And you begin to engage in a dialogue that gives an opportunity to talk about uh, who God has made them to be and where God is going in the world. And it, it takes a lot of time and energy, time and energy that, unfortunately, I was not always uh, willing to give uh, when I had my shot of the first go round. You know, it was amazing to me I, I could spend for so many years so little time with my children considering I only worked one day a week, you know, but but that's just how it went. Um, Rabbi Menachem Epstein puts it this way. If you're too busy to spend time with your children, then you are busier than God intended you to be. At whatever age your children are, we find that we are still uh, investing in that dialogue, investing in that classroom that's outside the church, and it will require all of us. Golda Meir was a little more introspective even than I when she wrote in her biography called My Life. And think of all the stuff Golda Meir did for Israel. And she said, she said, I know that my children are proud of me. However, I'm not yet sure that that pride makes up for the, the frequent times I was absent from my family. I don't know how to answer that. Uh, my sense is, have you ever entered a contest where it said you must, you need not be present to win? Okay, this isn't one of those contests. Discipleship really involves our presence and our listening and our praying and our dialoguing with those whom God has entrusted to our care. Uh, this past week, I, I was reading something that was written all, just shortly after the days of Jesus. So let me put it in context for you. The rabbis are writing, and, and oftentimes they, they teach by question and answer. The question is this. Who are the guardians of the city? And it's an important question because the Jews in Israel had been conquered first by the Assyrians, then by the Babylonians, then the Persians, then the Greeks, then the Romans. It's a good question. Who's guarding the city? And their answer was interesting because they believed that the fall of the Jews of the civilization would never come from the outside. It would always come from within were it to come. And so they said this, the guardians of the city are those who teach the word of God to children. They are the ones who are keeping us strong. It's a political campaign year, so we'll talk about border and border security now. We've got to wonder if we have enough security uh, between us and Canada. And we'll think about all those outside areas. And I'm not saying we shouldn't. But I'm just saying that maybe the first place, especially when we look at Seattle or we look at the subway in Brooklyn this week, those are our people. Maybe we look within the front line of the defense so that we can have the faith and the society that God wants us to have is right here with you and with me. We are the guardians. 
of the next generation.